0: Well, before I get into this, here's how I want to do this today. We're going to read through the chapter that we're going to be expositing today, and uh, then we're going to kind of get into little bits and pieces, and um, we'll see how far we can get through this. My plan is to get all the way through it. The clock may have other plans. I don't know. We'll see. Before we get into this, though, uh, let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, that you've given gifts to your body, you've given gifts to the church. I thank you, Lord, for motivating your people to utilize those gifts for the edification, the building up of your body, of your people. Father, I ask today that um, you would illumine my tired mind, um, that you would speak through me, as it were, You would edify your people, correct your people, exhort your people, all for the building up of your people to be more like you, to be more like Christ. Father, I ask that you would um, give me a clear mind, Lord, speak what you want spoken here today, Lord. Let me teach and preach today as if it's the last time I'll be able to do so. And let me speak and preach today as if it's the last time these people would ever hear your word, as a dying man to dying men. I thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I promise if this comes out well and you are encouraged by it, it is the action of the Holy Spirit. It is certainly not the action of Mr. Wilson. I was up far too late with this, and there's just, I told my wife, I said, I just, I hate when I do this, I get so enraptured with one part of it that I don't. It's been enough time in another part of it, and there's it's incredible. The, the Word of God is so rich and so deep. It, it seems like it's one of those things where you start digging and it gets wider. You keep digging and it's just deeper. And uh, as has been said before, the Word of God is deep and rich enough that any theologian can dive as deep as he wants and never touch bottom. And yet, it's gracious enough that any child can wade out in it and not fear of drowning. And uh, sometimes you get through maybe a seminary degree and you think you're that theologian that's going to dive real deep and touch bottom. And you find out you're more like the child that's knee deep. (laughs) And that's me. All right. Let's, uh, Let's read the Lord's word. We're in Genesis chapter 17. Let's read through this passage. And then we'll get into expositing some of the richness that's found here. Genesis chapter 17. We'll start in verse one It says when Abram was ninety nine years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and I may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. For an everlasting possession and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. Verse 15, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's a 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 99 or 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him. As an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I've blessed him. And I'll make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes. And I'll make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac. Whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he would finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son And all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house... And those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. All right. Thus says God's word. And it is so. This chapter can be divided up into four general sections in case you're wondering. Those of you that are theology students. The first one is God's assurance of the promise by the changing of Abram's name. There's a very specific reason he's doing this, by the way. This... Interaction between Abram and between God is actually modeled after a very common interaction of that day. You ready for the big words? Big 20 cent word? The suzerain vassal treaty. What in the world is that? Suzerain. Reign. Reign. What reigns? What is, who reigns? The king. A suzerain was basically the big king. Or the overlord. It might be a big king with little kings. It might be a big king with subjects of their kingdom. But this is a treaty that basically is, here's the big powerful one. You are the little inconsequential one. You don't have much to add to this or anything to add to this. But the treaty is between me and you. And most of the time, that was between either a a ruling king and kind of lesser kings, if you will. Or it was between a king and um, a people group. These are the vassals, right? These are basically the peasants that live in your land. And you're saying, as the king, as the king, I'm going to do this for you. You're going to serve me. You're going to be obedient to me. You're going to do what I ask you to do. And in, in return for that, I'm going to watch out for you. Remember, we're talking about a time when the world government, if you will, was a whole lot more anarchist. By the way, if you think anarchy is good... You're either not a very good student of history, or you haven't thought through politics very well. When anarchy reigns, the people who are powerful are the ones who, it's the law of the jungle. Whoever's the biggest and strongest. If I can take it from you, I will. What can you do about it? If I can get the whole gang of my guys together, we're going to take whatever we want from you. And so the king would say, no, that's not what's going to happen. We're going to watch out for you. If these invaders try to come in and take your stuff, we're going to fight for you. Meanwhile, your job is to be loyal to me, the king. You're the vassal. The only thing I'm asking out of you is loyalty, fealty. Okay. That's the first section, 1 through 8. God's requirements of obedience by the institution of circumcision is verses 9 through 14. That's the second section. The third section is God's specifying of the promise through Sarah. Oh, it's, it's Ishmael. Remember, we hatched this plan out. Remember, we, we've got this we got this child by our servant girl and God says, no, it's not the boy. That's not the one. And then, for, of course, the fourth and final section is, is Abraham's immediate response. By the way, notice that it is his immediate response. I mean, I'm going to try as best I can not to be crude in this section. But when you're talking about circumcision, there's just things that come up. Listen, that is uh That is something that if you are an adult male and somebody says, here's what we're going to do, we're going to grab a hold of your most protected part and we're going to whip out a knife and we're going to cut on it. My guess is you're not going to look forward to that. Abram goes and he sees God face to face, by the way, who was it that showed up? This is Jesus. This is absolutely a Christophany, no doubt about it. He's talking with God face to face. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. The one that we're celebrating in this season is right here talking face to face with Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to do all this stuff for you. Abraham's excited. By the way, Abraham laughs and says, I can't believe it. We're going to have it. He did not laugh. It was not the same kind of laugh as Sarah would later. I can't believe it. I'm going to have a kid. He actually believed the Lord. That's why he didn't get rebuked. I mean, it's incredible. I'm 100 years old. Are you serious? I'm going to have another, another child at 100? Sounds great. Wouldn't that be awesome? You're getting ready to leave. Man, God's given me an awesome promise. I am excited for this. Hey, one more thing before you go. I have something I need you to do. Sure, what's that? You and all your household, you're getting circumcised say what this is going to be the sign of the covenant say what does that sound fun think about the day and age that we're talking about think they just take a little lidocaine a little novocaine shot you couldn't just go down to walmart and get you know painkillers you know ibuprofen wasn't around yet right This is going to be a painful experience. And by the way, you are going to take this thing in faith. Because if something goes wrong with this procedure and you get an infection, which is incredibly likely, one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to have to remove the affected part to keep the rest of your body alive. How's that sound like fun, huh? Or you're going to let that infection become systemic and you're going to die. There is a lot of faith riding on this. And Abraham doesn't hesitate for a minute. If there's anything that we should get out of Abraham's life that we can emulate, it is this. When he hears God's voice, he acts now. Hey, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son, the son that you love. I want you to put him to death. Show me that you love me more. Cool. Gets up early the next morning. Doesn't hesitate. Doesn't grapple with God. Doesn't wrestle around. God told me to do this. I'm going to do it. Period. You know why Abram's the father of our faith? That right there. That should be our example of faith. God told me to do it. I see it very clearly. I'm going to do it. Yeah, but it doesn't make sense. It doesn't have to make sense. God has not asked me to figure out all the X, Y variables of this equation. He has asked me to obey. And we are such rationalists. We want to say this. Well, I'll obey if I can see that it's rational from my point of view. But I want you to obey. Well, I've got to make sure I've got to get all this thing figured out and make sure that's the rational thing to do. Make sure all that obedience is logical. Don't you understand, God? I can have my cake and eat it, too. I can have this pet sin because it's fun and I like it. And it's not going to affect me. We do that. I guarantee right now you have something like that in your life that you wrestle with and grapple with. You know it's wrong, but you can rationalize it. And so it has a grip in your life. You don't have any idea how far ranging, how wide, broad sweeping this thing is. You don't have any idea what kind of power sin has. There are two things that I think we do not, we do not um, understand very well in Western culture. Number one is how holy God is. We, we do not get that. And we say that we do. We don't. If we understood the, the holiness of God, we would have an entirely different view of sin. The other thing I don't think we understand well is the depth and seriousness of sin. We see our culture, we see people wrapped up in the sin, and we go, well, look at them, they're really successful, and they do all of this stuff, and eh, maybe I can just trifle with it. Adam and Eve had no idea eating a fruit would have such wide-ranging consequences. How could this happen? It's not that bad. Look, look at it. It's, it looks good for food. It's, it's going to make me wise. It's, this is a good thing. Why should I be afraid of this? Well, see, they didn't understand how deep sin went. They didn't understand what the consequences of that would be, and so they were willing to play with it. Right? Like the Bible says, Can a man take fire to his bosom and not be burned? That's what we do when we coddle sin. We basically take these burning coals and we go, Well, I'll just carry them from here to there. Can you imagine that? What kind of fool would you have to be to do that? But that's what we do. Abram hears God tell him something. It's going to be painful, it's going to be scary. It's going to be dangerous, and he does it immediately. I don't think we understand how big of a deal that is. All right. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I'll probably say it every time I preach. Every good teacher does review. Let's review what we went over last time. We saw the chapter 17 of Genesis opens up. Abram is now 99 years old. It's kind of an overview. Just so that you know, he was 75 years old when he left Haran. That's Genesis 12, 4. He was 86 years old when his son Ishmael was born from Hagar. Hagar, Hagar, Hagar. The servant girl. Remember why they had the servant girl? Hagar should never been part of the equation to start with. We saw the only reason he had Hagar was because he lied to the king. God rebuked him in a dream and says, hey, just kidding. She's married. Give her back. Guy says, hey, God, talked to me in a dream. I'm giving you back your wife. Here's some gifts. Get out of here. Hagar was part of the gifts. Had he never lied to begin with, he wouldn't have had Hagar there to start with. And now it gets even better. Remember, whose plan was it? Here's what we can do. Like any good Baptist, I say this all the time. I'm telling you, they were good Baptists, especially Sarah. She was a good Baptist girl. God said, I'm going to have a baby. God says he's going to be the son of promise, but I am past my childbearing years, so let's figure out how to help God with this. Let's get rationalistic about it. She says to Abram, she comes in, she goes, I've got a plan. Here's my plan. My plan is, I'm too old to have a baby, but there is this this kind of tradition in this culture where we can take a younger lady, it's kind of like surrogate parenting, right? Right? You can marry her, marry her, basically have sex with her that night. And then if she gets pregnant, when she has the baby, we'll adopt it as our own. That's going to be how God's plan is going to work. I can see it. It's going to happen. Let's make it happen. And what happens? It works. And then Sarah gets mad because it works. Hey, I had this plan and it worked, but now this, this thing's going to rise. You know, this Hagar, she, she, she looks down on me. I can't, I can't believe that. She made a big plan to help God out. It backfired tremendously, and now she's mad about it. I'm sure you've never done that. I have. I have had stuff that like that happen, and then I'm having this conversation with the Lord. Why is this happening? <laughs> and then you look, and you go, oh, I know why it's happening. I saw the culprit in the mirror this morning. As I decided to make it happen, I decided to help God out. Now it's backfired. I didn't see these variables in the equation. I'm in this place that I'd never counted on. And I don't know how to get out of there. And I've got good news for you and I've got bad news for you. Here's the bad news. The bad news is your sin has very real consequences. And you will likely face those consequences. Most of the brokenness that I have encountered in my life, not all of it, but most of it that I have encountered in my life, I have encountered on behalf of one depraved sinner. (laughs) Me. Okay, we like to pretend that every time something bad happens in our life, it's because we're so righteous and holy and we're being persecuted by those unjust, unrighteous other people we're around. I have bad news for you. That is typically not the case. Does it happen? Absolutely, it does happen. God's word says that all who desire to live a righteous life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You will be persecuted at some point if you know the Lord. But a lot of times we face problems and brokenness in our life, not because we're being persecuted by these ungodly pagans around us, but because we ourselves are sinners, too. That's the bad news. You want to know the good news? The good news, forgive me, this is going to choke me up. The good news is Jesus Christ has promised never to leave you and never to forsake you. He is your rescuer. He will walk with you through that. And I'm going to tell you something. We don't understand how incredible that is because we don't understand the holiness of God. We're talking about a being who is eternally, perfectly holy. And he looks down on depraved sinners like you and me and says, I love you so much, I'll even walk with you through your sin. I will lay down my perfect life, my perfect blood. I'll be abused. I'll be beaten. I'll be maligned for you. I hope this doesn't come out as rude, but you've never loved anybody like that in your life. You haven't. And neither have I. You know why? Because I'm not perfect. For me to love another sinner is very much like me to love another person who's like myself. Jesus Christ to love you is not like loving another sinner. He is a perfectly righteous God man who loves very imperfect, depraved people. And He loves them even in spite of their sin. What is the good news for you? You're a sinner, that's bad news. The good news is Jesus Christ the righteous does not leave you or forsake you. Unlike us, He keeps His word every time. When you fall and when you stumble and when you find yourself in the mire that you've created, He is still there for you. He is still willing to pick you up. He's still willing to watch you off. He's still willing to put His arms around you. He's a loving Father. And he's willing to walk with you through this all, just like my own children. Do my children sin all the time? And I get so frustrated and worn out sometimes, and then I think, man, I can't believe there's such little me's. And then I realize, wait, Jesus doesn't kick me to the curb, and I blow it. I thought by the time I was 40, I'd be farther along than this. I thought I'd be past all of that, blowing it, right? Or blowing up. Or having all of the, I thought I'd have this part of my life, that'd be all done, right? I'd have this all ironed out. I'm going to be that part of the bride without spot or without wrinkle. And at 40 years old, you know what I found out? As soon as Christ conquers some sin in my life, and I think, yes, awesome. He illuminates how I'm sinning in another area. What? I didn't see that. I thought I was, mm mm-mm. No, it's kind of what happens when you get married. <laughs> I hate to say this was true, right? I can remember getting married. And I'm like, I'm oh, a pretty good guy. Oh, baby, just wait. Just wait. You're about to live with a person. You know what happens? They get to know you really well. And then you get to see just how selfish you really are, right? Man, I can remember my wife and I did this without even knowing it. Coming to the house, I'm like, this place is so hot. Over, turn it down. Alright. Go back. I'm doing all my work. I'm about to go to bed. And I'm like, it is so hot. I thought I turned that down. We played that game for I don't know how long. Finally, I'm like, woman, are you turning the heat up in this house? It's like so cold. What is wrong? And we're having this, we're having an argument over how cold or hot the house should be because I, I should have it my way. And she thinks she should have it her way. Oh, it's just coming out, isn't it? (laughs) And yet Christ promises never to leave you or forsake you. That's incredible. If that doesn't cause you to rejoice, if that doesn't cause you to be thankful, if that's not enough to celebrate the incarnation of Christ at this time, and I don't know what else will. If you can't be thankful that the Lord, even in your own sinfulness, promises not to leave you, even in your own sinfulness promises, I will walk with you through this, I will help you get through this mess. I will show you how to pick up the pieces. I will show you how to live with one another even though there is sin. First John 1, 7 to me is an incredible promise of Scripture. And usually we don't count it as a promise. But it says this. It says, if we walk in the light, like we heard this morning, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus covers us from all sin and we have fellowship with one another. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the one who's teaching us to have fellowship with one another. Listen, you can't have fellowship with one another when there's sin there. Because that means one person's always ends up basically taking advantage of the other person. And Jesus is saying this. If you'll walk in the light as I am in the light, you will have true fellowship. Because you won't be taking advantage of each other. Because you'll be looking out for the needs and the interests of others. I saw this very clearly last night. Saturday night. The time when you could be doing anything else. I send out a text. And I'm like, hey, anybody want to help me with a project? <laughs> What's a project? Lifting and moving a piano. That's fun. And I had some guys say, sure, we'll help. On a Saturday night, okay? Look, you can be, that's the night when you go out and you watch movies, you have fun. They're like, yeah, sure, let's go move a piano. They did. They showed up, and we go all the way over to the other side of Anos. We'll move this piano. And then they follow me back to my house, come back to the house with me, lift it up, get it back inside. I mean, that thing's heavy on a Saturday night when they could be doing anything else. They didn't even want, they don't want money. Hey, we're just here to help. It's pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible that we have people who are willing to do that. Why are they willing to do that? Why? Because Jesus Christ has set that pattern for us. And as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Jesus Christ is the one who's pushing us to watch out for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. To help our brothers and sisters in the Lord. It was incredible to me. I watched when Jeremy had his surgery. Watch him come home and there's a you know, text that says, Hey, Jeremy's going to need some help getting into the house when he gets home. They're going to need some help, you know, moving some stuff around. And there's like a gaggle of people that flock over to help him. Why would they do that? Because Jesus Christ did that for them. Okay, let me go on. Let's... Kind of getting out on a rabbit trail, aren't I? We saw that Sarah and Abraham are a little past the child-rearing age. God reminds Abraham again of his original promise to him. This is where the Suzerain-Vassal Treaty structure starts. This is basically how these treaties happened. They were a very ancient Near Eastern thing. You see this in Hittite culture. You see this in the, uh, uh, the culture of the Babylonians. We, basically, what we see is the vassal starts out by saying, this is what I've done for you, and this is who I am. And typically they, you see new titles of their names, right? Have you, you've, you've seen uh, kind of a reflection of this in some of the, the Middle Ages documents, right? The king, if you were writing a letter to the king, you didn't just address him as, oh, it's King Henry. It was King Henry, the you know, the just and the defender of the faith. And the, you have all these titles because you're recognizing, hey, I'm recognizing who you are. And that's what the king starts out with. Here are some of my titles and my names. And he reveals to Abraham a new name. He shows Abraham who he is. I'm El Shaddai. We do not see El Shaddai in the scriptures anywhere up until this point. Which means the overpowering one, the conquering one, right? I think God showed up this way. Jesus showed up this way to Abraham because, remember, ever since Hagar... Remember, ever since that night that Ishmael was... But we don't see a face-to-face encounter between God and Abraham after that. Thirteen years he goes with silence from God. Have you ever felt like God was silent? Abraham did. Hey, maybe... Maybe God's silent because he doesn't repeat himself often. Maybe God showed you clearly through his Holy Spirit... Some sin or something in your life and you love it so much you are unwilling to part with it and you go back and go, God, lead me, guide me, show me what you want me to do. And he's saying, I already did. You already know. And yet you're unwilling to listen. What more do you want? That's basically what happens with Abram. Here's what's going to happen, Abraham. I'm going to give you a child. Abraham knows clearly he's talking about Sarah. He gave the promise before he had Hagar. He said, you and your wife, when it was just him and Sarah, he knew exactly what God meant. And yet he plays that same stupid game that we see in Genesis 3. Well, did God really say that? Does he really mean that? Have you ever done that to justify your own sin? I know the Bible says this, but what do you think it really means? Oh, that's deep, isn't it? No, that's stupid, usually. You know darn well what it means. So do I. I, I. I wish I could tell you who it was now. I think it was C.S. Lewis. It says, uh, most men don't have a problem with finding out what the Bible means. They have a problem because they know what it means and they don't want to obey it. That's a lot of times true. That was not what happens with Abram. Abram, they hatch a plan. Wife comes up with a plan. Abram's like, that's a great idea. I'll marry this good-looking young servant girl and have a child with her i'm sure his intentions were just holy pure at that point i'm sure and that that'll 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 work this will this will be god's new plan we'll help him out with that plan and god doesn't say another word to him until ishmael is in that culture legally old enough to be an adult at 13 you were an adult now you're a young man still you still have a lot to learn but you were legally an adult now you're not a child anymore And after that point, then we see God showing back up again and saying, all right, round two, son. Maybe you didn't catch this. All right. Let's get back through this, man. I'm just going to have to give an overview. We saw El Shaddai in verse 1. I am almighty God. That is El Shaddai. Here's what R.C. Sproul had to say about this. Of the many Hebrew names for God that have been transliterated into the English language and used in Christian worship, El Shaddai is certainly among the best known. Literally, it means God Almighty. However, a better foundational meaning of El Shaddai may be the overpower, which emphasizes God's power to achieve all of his purposes. The word Shaddai actually comes out of a Hebrew word that means to display power, to destroy, to conquer, or to overpower. El Shaddai tells us that God is the only one Who is able to do whatever he so pleases. He is able to do whatever he wills to do. He can destroy whatever and whomever he wills. And he can overpower whatever he wants to. And there is nothing and no one who can stay his hand. Who can effectively resist whatever he decides to do. That is what God is saying to Abraham. Abraham, I don't need your help. I am the all powerful one i'm the overcoming one i just need you to sit back and watch and be obedient to what i have to say i don't need your help to make this happen there's great news in this passage for you let me tell you what that great news is god is still able to do above and beyond the natural means you ever felt like that you like, hey, I'm not the right one for this job. If you look at this in the natural means, I am not the one for this job. That's our church. Welcome to our church. Right? Serious. Look at our pastors. All of us have big seminary degrees. Had great, you know, we obviously learned under the best. You didn't know this, but Ronnie actually was an intern for R.C. Sproul for 10 years. Right? Randy Tyler. Randy Tyler transcribed all of Spurgeon's works into French and German. No. If you looked at all of us, and I do mean all of us. You're like, what? Not the right guys for the job. It's true. And yet God is pleased. Why is He pleased to utilize us? Well, sometimes He shows His power in His in our weakness. Well, I'm not the right one for this. I know God wants me to do this, but I I just I, I feel like God is really. Pushing me, driving me to do this, but I am not the right one. I'm not the most qualified. I might be the least qualified. I'm not the person for this job. God, are you sure you got the right person? That's basically what Abraham's saying. I'm a hundred years old. He's not the right guy. Oh, you're going to start a family? You want him to teach his generations after him? Dude, a hundred. How many generations is he going to have? How many kids is he going to teach? I'm going to make you the father of nations. I got got one son. You're going to have another one. Woo! Two. Man, what a fruitful union, right? And yet God says, I'm going to do it. By the way, Abraham didn't get to see all of this fulfilled before he was gone. He just kind of got to see just a little bit. And I have news for you. It may be that way with your life as well. You may not realize you may be one that starts something that doesn't get finished in your lifetime. You may be like Moses standing up, watching, going, man, there's the promised land. I thought this was what I was for. I thought this was what I was going to do. God, I'm going to take these people into the promised land. And God is not asking you to get all the details worked out. He's simply saying, follow me. Have faith. God, I really want you to do this with my life. Bad news for you. Your life's not about you anymore. You died. Remember, that was what your baptism was. You died to your old life. That means you died to you. And now Jesus Christ gets to use your life in any way he so chooses. But God, you're not doing it like I would. Well, that's true, but most of us would order our lives... If we had the opportunity, if it's up to us, we're going to order our lives in such a manner that we are going to be wealthy and influential and all of the glory in our life is on us. And God may order your life a different way. Because God is not concerned about you getting glory. I have bad news. It's going to come out kind of harsh. You don't deserve glory. The best works you've ever done have been mingled with sin. There's nothing you've ever done that hasn't been tainted some way. Who deserves glory? God does. The holy, righteous judge and creator of the universe. That's who deserves glory. It's not selfish for him to want glory because he's perfect. Your life is no longer about you. It's about the glory of God. And that's what Abram is finding out. Abraham, your life is not about you. It's about glorifying me. I have a question for you. Did God choose Abraham? Obviously, very clearly. I have some, from time to time, I have debates with my less reformed friends and brothers. I mean, I'm from Methodist church, people. You don't get less reformed than the Methodist church. Wesleyan. And I'll have people say, well, God chose Abraham. That's why Israel is God's people. I won't get into all of that, but I had a person tell me this. It is, if God chooses people today, if God chooses who he wants to save, if God chooses us before we choose him, and he's a monster, he's a moral monster, to which I say, okay, did he did He choose people in the Old Testament? Well, well yeah. Oh, was he a moral monster then? Oh, so he used to be a moral monster, but today he's more holy than he used to be? That's literally heretical. You're saying God as an entity, as a person, as a being, has changed his nature. Oh, he used to be this way, but now his nature's changed. And he's not immutable, and he's not God. No, God chose, and guess what? He has not changed. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. Book of John says we love him because he first loved us. Okay. Just throwing it out there, something you can chew on and get mad about later. Okay. Uh, also, he says this, I'm Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. We said this, the word blameless does not mean without sin. A lot of times we like to say that. Well, he's telling, he's telling Abraham, don't sin. And later he's going to institute the law. And so if you sin, this was how you got rid of your sin. That's not what he's saying. The word blameless here does not mean without sin. It means in a whole fashion. I want all of you. I want your entire life. I want you to walk wholly before me. Not just H-O-L-Y, W-H-O-L-E, whole. The entirety of your life. We don't do a very good job of that. That is what God asks us to do today. Christianity is not something you do on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. It is an entire life commitment. And we are very poor at that. And we're certainly very poor at passing that on to our children. We'll spend thousands of hours and... Thousands and thousands of dollars making sure they can hit a curveball before they graduate. And yet at 18, they can't they don't have enough knowledge of the scriptures to be able to pass their faith along. I got news for you. I don't care if your kid gets into Harvard and they get to play professional sports. If they leave your home at 18 and they can't pass on the essentials of the faith, you have not done your job as a parent. If they don't know the faith, that should be the number one. That is the goal. What does it profit a man if he gains the entire world but loses his soul? Hey, what does it profit you as a parent if your kid can do all of those things and they get an Ivy League education, but they don't know the first thing, they don't know iota or squat about Christianity? Their entire faith can be derailed with the easiest of questions because you've never taught them anything. Oh, they grew up in a Christian home. I don't know what happened. I know what happened. You didn't disciple them. No, we took them to church. You don't understand. No, I do understand. Church is not a substitute for you discipling your children. It should be a supplement to the things that you're learning throughout the week get reinforced on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights. If the only thing that they're getting from the scriptures is Sunday morning or Wednesday night, you are not doing a good job discipling your children. I'm sorry to be that hard, but that's true. And we do a poor job of that here in the U.S. We do a terrible job of that in the West. It's incredible because we will we'll spend I mean, we will pour ourselves out to make sure our kids have other skills and other abilities. And then when it comes to the stuff like, I don't know, knowing the faith, being able to articulate that faith. We just kind of hope for the best. Well, that's a hope is not, as my brother likes to say, hope's not an action plan. I should be training them with the idea, hey, one day. They are going to have to be able to, number one, know their faith. Number two, defend their faith. And number three, when they get married and have children, they will have to pass this faith along. Have I given them the tools to be able to do that? That's my job. God said to Abraham, this is verse nine. As for you, you'll keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Here's your job. I'm showing you all about me and I expect you to teach it to your kids. And oh, by the way, I expect you to teach it to anybody else in your household as well. You've got these people that were bought as, as foreigners. You've got others that were born in your household. It's kind of like having adopted kids. I expect you to teach all of them about me. All of them were circumcised. Which also tells me something about those men. They believed and trusted Abraham. Because he came and said, here's what we're doing. And, and not one of them balked at it. Would you? I mean, look, if you're a hired hand, you come in one day and the guy goes, hey, here's what we're doing. And he tells you this is the plan. I mean, do you think I'd be like, "Mm, well, you know, I might be looking for other work. Uh, Notice help wanted down the road. It's been a great time. I appreciate you having me. Not one of them balked at it. Which says this for all of his flaws and failures, they knew his trust in God was very genuine. Now, listen, you as a Christian, wherever it is, you work. Whatever people you're around, you're not going to be perfect. i got bad news for you. You're not going to be perfect. And if you're around people long enough, you work with people long enough, they're going to see all your flaws and failures. I promise they see mine. What the question comes down to is, do they know that that faith you have is genuine? Or is it a show? Is it a a scam? If they know it's genuine, you will have the ability to speak the gospel. They may not agree with it. They may not even accept it. But it's genuine. It's coming out. I, one of the professors that I had in college, it's crazy, because I had three times when I was in college, I had my degree threatened. Hey, we're going to make sure you don't get out of here. Biology degree from East Central and you don't believe in Darwinism. Do you know who, who, all three times it was? Once it was a deacon at a large Baptist church here in town who was also a professor. You believe in creation? I'm like, duh, duh, don't, don't you? I didn't realize, okay, never mind, yeah, okay. Softer, gentler, newer kind of faith. Another time, it was a very devout, committed professor who was a Methodist from, I think, actually over in Stratford. And the third time, it was a good Baptist lady. Never was it an atheist professor. It was always someone that said they were Christian. You know what my atheist professor did? He did not agree with me, Obviously and yet he listened you know why i mean he trust me he saw all my flaws and failures but he knew at least my faith was genuine he actually liked me which is strange cuz i mean he's he's a very anti-christian atheist man we get done there was a big final we had it was a lab final and he had the key with him at the front and i had man i'd been doing everything else in the world and there was some of these things i had not had time to cuz we had to know all the scientific names of every single Reptile in Oklahoma, and there was a few that I just didn't have enough time to get all their names down. And I'm the last person in there. I'm still like, oh, Lee, just waiting. Everybody else is gone. He's got the key to the test. He says, hey, Wilson, I'm going to put this right here. I'm going to go down to my office, and I will not be back for five minutes. you understand? He walks out. I'm sure you've never been tempted to academic dishonesty. There was never a time in my life where I was more tempted than that. And I sat there and I'm going to tell you right now, I fought that. Do you know what? I did not. I purposefully left the ones that I had. I didn't even guess on them. I left them blank. You know why? Because I know he's going to come back in. If I get all of these right, he knows which ones I'm looking at back here. If I get every one of these right, he's going to assume that I cheated off that key. And it's more important for me that he knows that my faith in Christ is genuine than if I get an A or a B on this final. And trust me, I'm going to get an A on that final. I've worked hard in that class. So I left him blank. And I, I sat back there at the back and I waited for him to come back. And he finally comes back and he's like, you done? I was like, done as I'm going to get. He kind of gave me this quizzical look. I took it to him, gave him my test, and I left. Do you know that he came to my house for Christmas that year? How many times does a professor do that? He came over to our house in Davis for Christmas. We talked about the gospel. He did not like it. He's not, as far as I know, that never took root. But I had a chance to speak it. Listen, I'm going to say this and close with this. We see God telling him, this is the sign. It's going to be circumcision. This sign is going to be painful. It's going to be dangerous. It's going to be your most precious, cherished thing. It's still that. Not the circumcision of the flesh. No, the circumcision of the heart. When your heart is circumcised, you know what God comes in and does? He finds the idols in your heart. And He says, I want that. I want you to sacrifice this. No, God, this this is precious to me. This is, I I like this sin. I want this. I want your heart to be circumcised. I want you to cut this thing out. I want you to lay this thing down. I want this. I want to know I'm number one, not number two. And we want to serve Christ by making him number two or number three or number four. Hey, I'm still going to church, Lord. I'm I'm still, I'm I'm Christian. No, I want to be number one. I'm more important than baseball. I'm more important than whatever. I'm more important than Harvard. I'm more important than the big promotion to be the CEO. I'm the most important thing, period. That's the God we serve. He's worthy of that. He's not asking for devotion that's not. He's not asking for devotion that's, that's not equal to what he's worth. He's not asking for blind devotion. He's not asking for, for us to follow him in an unworthy manner. He's not like an earthly king. He's holy. He's worth the devotion and he's asking for it. Walk blameless before me. Give me your whole life. Give me everything. I'm the big God. You're the little person. And yet I'm going to love you, and I'm going to sacrifice myself for you. But I demand all of your life. Let's pray. God, we realize we are not a people who are without sin. And though we don't want to sin, and we don't like sin, and we don't want to willfully sin, we realize we will. We will serve you in an imperfect manner. And you're worthy of us serving you in a perfect manner. You're worthy of us serving you with our entire life. But God, even in our brokenness, in our imperfections, Father, let us be a people who serve you with our whole hearts, with all of our lives. Wherever we're at, you are number one. You're the first in our hearts and in our minds when we're in the classroom. You're the first in our heart and our minds when we're at work. You're the first in our hearts and our minds on the baseball field or on the softball field or on the basketball court. That you would talk, as it were, through us, Lord. That you would bring your word through our mouths to those that don't know you. And that we can serve you in a manner that at least they know when we give them the gospel. It comes from a genuine faith. Not a perfect faith, Lord, but a genuine one. I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.